Well, that's enthusiasm. I don't see that regularly. Does this have a button off? Because I'm going to put it down and put on the uh, Madonna uh, uh, microphone. All right. Everything good? Yes? Good? Bueno? Which is Hebrew, by the way. For bueno? All right. Well, apparently I didn't set up the slideshow. All right. Pardon me just one moment uh, while my technical difficulties are showing from current slide. How's that sound? We got it? Oh, yeah. Okay. So what I want to do, first of all, is I would like to uh, review what we covered yesterday. Yesterday, we looked at Messianic prophecies. We did a uh, whirlwind, I know, uh, whirlwind overview of the Messianic prophecies within the Torah. Um, what we did not cover, and I just want to remind us of what we saw yesterday, so that we are accumulating a picture. We're, we're seeing as we add one section of Scripture to the next that we accumulate an entire picture of what could be anticipated about the Messiah by the Jewish people after the publication or the, the collection of the Torah, after the writing of the Torah, after the writing of the, of the prophets, after the writing of the writings, we're going to uh, accumulate these. So what can we synthesize regarding Messianic prophecy from what we saw in the law? Here's what we can see. First of all, a coming Messiah, born of woman, will defeat Satan. Broad brush strokes. That starts us off in Genesis 3. The Messiah will reverse the curse. Genesis 5, 28 through 29. Messiah would be the seed of Abraham. Genesis 22 and, well, all of the uh, Abrahamic covenant passages. The Messiah would be a Jewish king from the tribe of Judah. Genesis 49, 10. The coming of Messiah would be heralded by the astronomical sign of a star, Numbers 24, 17, Balaam's fourth oracle. And the prophet like Moses, Deuteronomy 18, the Messiah would be a Jewish prophet, uniquely similar to Moses. So that, in a nutshell, or at least in one PowerPoint slide, is what we can synthesize from the Messianic prophecies that are in the Torah. So this is what we know about the Messiah. So those people who would like to say that nothing can be known about the Messiah in the Old Testament and the Hebrew Bible, uh, and uh, everything comes after Jesus and is then looked back on in the uh, in the Hebrew Bible, they find matching texts that align with Jesus. Nonsense. It's nonsense. This is what could be known post-Moses. Post-Moses. So that's very early. So now we are going to look at Messianic prophecy in the writings. And we will not finish this this, uh, this afternoon. We will finish the, this evening. And even then, uh, we'll be pressed for time and moving quickly, but we will leave some time for questions, of course. So we begin Messianic prophecy within the writings... Oh, okay. Uh, we, we find that, first of all, in 1 Samuel 2. 1 Samuel 2, verses 1 through 10, which I won't read the entire song of Hannah. You remember 
what happens here. Hannah finds out that she's going to give birth to, and she's, to a son, and she uh, gives this beautiful song of praise. Then Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth speaks boldly against my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. So first of all, my horn, the imagery of horn, I know you know this, but it's really great to be reminded, I think, every now and then of that, which is basic knowledge. Uh, the horn is uh, the power, my strength, right? My heart and my strength. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth speaks boldly against my enemies. How come? Because I rejoice in your salvation, but let's get to the punchline at the end of the prayer, which, by the way, the entire prayer is a rehearsal of the, uh, of the promises of the Abrahamic covenant to the Jewish people and uh, turning uh, upside down the world. The strong will be made weak, the high will be made low, the low will be made high. It, it's, a, it's a study in contrast. But we get to the last verse. And this is where the action is. Those who contend with Jehovah, the Lord, covenant name of God, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, will be shattered against them. He will thunder in the heavens. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. And here's where you've got to pay attention. And he will give strength to his king and will exalt the horn, the power of his Mashiach, his anointed. The word Mashiach shows up earlier in the scripture. You find it in the Torah, right? The concept of anointing. Right? But the idea of God's anointed makes its debut, appearing for the first time in Jewish history, on any stage. Um, this, verse 10. God will exalt the horn of his Mashiach, this beautiful praise of the Lord, concludes with uh, uh, one of the Hebrew Bible's central theological terms and concepts. This is the initial use of Mashiach. What do we think about that? Mary must have thought a lot of it. Because in what we call the Magnificat, you know, which is Mary's song of the Lord, she cribs a tremendous amount from Hannah. Oh, Bible scholars would like to say, well, Mary didn't actually sing this. Luke uh, is, is, is uh, creating a theme uh, and going back to Hannah and cribbing from Hannah and putting words into Mary's mouth. Nonsense. This woman was apparently a spiritual giant in her generations, not just any girl. This is a girl who after the initial, when the angel comes, and the angel always says, what did the angel always say? Right? Fear not, right? Right? Because, right? Because angels, when they show up in Scripture, they're not little chubby little children with wings, right? There's something, you know, why do they say fear not? Because the people are afraid when they see an angel. Okay, well, don't, don't sue me, it's in the text. Uh, but... <laughs> He announces, uh, <laughs> he announces everything that's going to happen. It's called, that's why it's called the Annunciation. Uh, everything that's going to happen and that uh, uh, you will be the mother of, uh, of the Son of God and, uh, uh, and, and uh, 
the son of David. Uh, She doesn't say, what are you talking about? What's Mary's question? It's not a theological question that she asks when the angel unloads this fantastic level of good news. She's not saying, well, what do you mean by sit on the throne of his father David? What do you mean by uh, his kingdom will have no end? What's Mary's question? Mechanical, right? How then shall this be since I've not known a man? No questions regarding the theological concepts, which indicates the high level of biblical literacy of Mary as a young teenage Jewish girl. She has a great elevated level of theological literacy, biblical literacy, and is so fluent with the song of Hannah that she can adapt it using the themes of God's... That's that's the punchline of, of, uh, of Hannah's song. God's anointed one, God's Mashiach. And she can adapt it to her own experience. Mary says, my soul exalts the Lord. That's the same line. My heart exalts in the Lord. My soul exalts the Lord. My spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. Whereas Hannah said, in my salvation. Right? So she says, God my Savior. He is regard for the humble state of his bond slave. For behold, from this time on all generations will count me blessed. And here's the great stuff. For the mighty one has done great things for me, and holy is his name. He has given help to Israel, his servant, in remembrance of his mercy, he spoke as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his descendants forever. So we move from the very, very brief, this teasing reference in 1 Samuel. And we go through the rest of the books of Samuel and the, the, the writings and the Psalms and the prophets and this complex of... Jewish messianic thought and hope and expectation develops over time and with new revelation, culminating with the revelation uh, of the Messiah himself within the gospel narratives. It shouldn't take anyone familiar with the Hebrew Bible. It shouldn't take anyone. It certainly doesn't take Mary by surprise. It was Mary's familiarity with Hannah's song and its messianic content that prompted her following this angelic visitation, this announcement, to use the ancient poem as a prototype of her own song of praise to the Lord. Right? If you think about it, young, young Jewish girls in the first century, in Second Temple Judaism, there weren't a tremendous number of female heroes of, 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 of female heroes to look up to, to uh, attempt to uh, be... You have the, the Jewish... Mat- uh, I'm sorry, uh, matriarchs, and you have uh, uh, occasional... Uh, so when one like Hannah comes up, who was a woman uh, of piety, apparently she had made a great impression on Mary, and we see it in the imagery of the song, noticing that she is tying in the promises in the Davidic covenant, linking them to the Abrahamic covenant, and getting this great expectation of Messiah. We see the same kind of thing going on uh, with 
with John the Baptist's father, uh, Zacharias, in his prophetic song of praise. And they are both in Luke chapter 1. They're, they're linked together by Luke for a purpose because they're similar. And it says, Blessed be the Lord God... We're not doing the whole thing. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people and has raised up a horn. There's this picture again, this imagery, the power of God symbolized as a horn. And again, we were talking about the wild ox horns yesterday, and I have never been on the, uh, uh, but I know in Texas, there are some of you who have been on the receiving end of, uh, of some horns, uh, and uh, you know that the power of the animal is often in the, and, and that's what we're talking about, a horn of salvation, the power of salvation, where? In the locus, in the location of the house of David, his servant, Davidic covenant, as he spoke by the mouths of his holy prophets from of old. It doesn't say all the prophets like Peter uh, and Jesus, did, but nonetheless, uh, by the mouth of more than one holy prophet from of old. Salvation from our enemies, from the hands of all who hate us, to show mercy toward our fathers, to remember his holy covenant. Which covenant? The oath. Thank you for telling me here. Which he swore to Abraham our father. So you see the messianic ideal, even the messianic concepts, the messianic expectation, messianic hope, is, uh, is growing. It's built upon the foundation that we laid in the Torah last night, and we begin to see it expand through the writings. Okay, good. And certainly by the time the New Testament uh, is here, the time of the announcement of, of Jesus, the time of the arrival of Jesus on the human stage. The messianic expectation had developed into a very, very uh, complex uh, and robust uh, set of expectations. Now, we move to speaking of the Davidic covenant. We move to one of the most important passages. In fact, it's a double, double passage. It's so important that Almost verse for verse, we have parallel passages in two segments. In 2 Samuel 7, 8 through 16, and 1 Chronicles 17, 7 through 14, we have the Davidic covenant. We find here the unconditional set of promises that God made to David of a perpetual dynasty, an unshakable kingdom, and an eternal throne. This is an indissoluble covenant with David, in which David has promised that one of his descendants would forever rule over Israel. It is impossible, right? I have two words for you, impossible, to comprehend the basis of the Hebrew Scriptures' numerous messianic prophecies without the foundational expectations relayed within the Davidic covenant. It is the indispensable ingredient. And it's consisting of several different components. Well, let's actually just take a look at it here. Moreover, I tell you, the Lord will build a house for you. When your days are fulfilled, that you must go to be with your fathers, that I will set up one of your descendants after you, who will be of your sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build for me a house, and I will establish his throne forever. <coughs> I will be his father and he will be my son. And I will not take my loving kindness away from him as I took it from him who was before you, Saul. But 
I will settle him in my house and in my kingdom forever. And his throne shall be established forever. What do we see in the components? First of all, we see that God, I was reading the Chronicles passage, by the way, if you didn't catch that. God will build David a royal dynasty. Point number one. Component number one. Point number two, component number two, David's son, whomever he will be, will reign securely. Point number three, David's heir will build a temple for the Lord. This is Solomon <coughs> who did this, his heir. But then we obviously move beyond Solomon because his son's throne is established forever. Not just enduring but both enduring and eternal. God would make David's name great. Not to say that, oh, David, it's an awesome name and lots of people should be named David. Uh, it's it, me, reputation. You understand this. Yeah. That, that might be for those of you watching from Rio Linda. Uh, but uh, <laughs> the next component, Israel will experience an... <laughs> An unprecedented era of permanent tranquility. Permanent tranquility and peace and security and justice. David's dynasty will never be abolished and would continue in perpetuity. And promise of an undying eternal king to permanently guarantee the previous components. See, all the other components are found in both Samuel and Chronicles. This particular promise is only found in First Chronicles, uh, the First Chronicles passage. So when we think about what is promised to David, we cannot leave out the eternal, undying, established permanently established kingdom, throne, dynasty. The only way to permanently guarantee these components is to have an immortal descendant. The Jewish people, the Davidic covenant, these promises regarding a messianic son of David, it is recognized. The 15th of the 18 benedictions contained in a collection of prayers called the uh, Amidah. It's corporately recited the congregation several times daily. Explicitly prays for the coming of Mashiach, of the Messiah, of the Anointed One, of the Son of David. We see this in every Jewish Siddur prayer book. We see this in every uh, Jewish, we're talking multiple times. We see this multiple times in every Jewish machzor, which are the special prayer books that are used for the high holy days, for the uh, uh, Rosh Hashanah, and for Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. We see this as foundational. And it's a prayer that goes back at least to Second Temple times. So this is 15. Speedily cause the branch of your servant David to flourish. We haven't gotten to that terminology yet. 
Everybody, you know, in my heart, it rings a melody, but not in the congregation when I'm speaking, if you please. So, <laughs> but kudos for your ringtone, my dear. That it could have been a rap, and you know, and that would have been very incongruous, you know. <laughs> Everybody quick, check your cell phones. All right. <laughs> Speedily caused the branch. We haven't gotten to that language yet. That's prophetic language. The branch of your servant David to flourish. Exalt his horn. Oh, there's this term, the power symbolized by the horn. Exalt his horn by your salvation. You see how he's, he's uh, the, the author of this prayer is going back to uh, First Samuel to Hannah's song, going back to the Davidic covenant, exalt his horn by your salvation, because we hope for your salvation all the day. Blessed are you, O Lord, who causes the horn of salvation to flourish. Now, that's from Second Temple times. Now, there's something else from Second Temple times, the Gospels, uh, the New Testament. Let's uh, take a look at the New Testament, and we're going to see that the New Testament is studded through it's uh, it's like a like a like a, a heavily lit. We had some very nice uh, cookies out there, heavily laden with chocolate chips, uh, and uh, that's what the New Testament is like. Heavily studded through with references to Jesus being the royal fulfillment, the living embodiment of the Davidic covenant, beginning with the very opening statement of Matthew's gospel. Remember, we talked last night about you always read the first section of a book, the last section of a book, because these contain the things that the author wants you to really remember, wants you to really grab your attention and say, going forward, we're going to explore this theme. And then um, he punctuates it at the end with what he wants you to remember, right? So New Testament begins as the, as the, the canon of the New Testament is designed. It is designed, as you're walking up to the New Testament, to be punched right in the chops with the concept that Jesus is the messianic son of David. The record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham, linking Davidic and Abrahamic covenants right there very simply. It continues with Luke's record of the angelic announcement that was made to inform Mary. We already heard her song. Uh, Mary, of course, David's direct descendant through his son Nathan, who would soon give birth to the Messiah, the long-anticipated Davidic heir. The Annunciation references the Davidic covenant, very specifically, and the angel's unmistakable and unambiguous regal covenantal terminology. Behold, Luke 1, 31. You will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. Remember, this is the only question that she actually asks. What's the mechanics? Okay, how does it work? Doesn't ask a thing about the theology. She already understands it. Because it's expected. It's in the air. Messianic expectation is a fragrance that permeates the very air of Judea and Galilee the first century. He will be great and called the Son of the Most High. 
And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom will have no end. I've received many a Christmas card with this quotation on it. I wonder if I wonder if you've ever really thought about this familiar passage, what's actually being said. He'll be great and called the Son of the Most High, Son of God. And he'll also be Son of David. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And he'll reign over the house of Jacob. This little baby boy, this little Jewish king, is going to reign over the house of Jacob forever. Is the house of Jacob the church? No. Why would we read the passage as if this is an announcement that the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, the, ch the church is, is on its way. Hey, very. This is the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. But of course, if you're unfamiliar with the Davidic covenant, how shall they believe unless they hear? How will they hear unless they're taught? This is why biblical literacy is critical in our churches. And we, if not die, we go hungry for lack of knowledge. We are left anemic through lack of biblical literacy. The, abil the simple ability to see in the New Testament that it is the fulfillment of a promise, a statement, a, uh, a, a prayer that was given in the Hebrew Bible. Well, the reign of the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will have no end. Boy, there's so many things that that references. Isaiah, of course, uh, 9, and um, David, uh, the, the covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, etc., etc. But in the first century, the title son of David, Ben David, conveyed a potent, not just religious punch, but a potent political punch. It was widely understood to refer to the idealized political, political revolutionary who had cast off the shackles of Roman oppression, judge the wicked, and purge evil from the midst of Israel. Israel enthusiastically anticipated that the dynasty of David would be restored, the kingdom of Israel at last made glorious. This expectation, of course largely based on the Hebrew prophets, we'll explore those tomorrow, is widely espoused throughout first century Jewish literature, including the Dead Sea Scrolls. And so Jesus conducted his ministry amidst a whirlwind of amplified Davidic anticipation. In fact, one of the foremost titles ascribed to Jesus in the New Testament is Son of David. Why? Because it designates him as the recipients of all the promises that were made to David concerning the future eternal government of one of his descendants. It specifies that Jesus is the royal majestic Mashiach, Messiah, who was entitled by birthright to rule and to reign over all Israel. During Jesus' earthly ministry, he was, uh, while he certainly uh, 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 and accepted 
this title as applicable uh, to himself. He abjectly refused to be drawn into either political intrigue or revolutionary activity. Let's take a look. Matthew 9, 28. When he entered the house, the blind men came up to him, and Jesus said, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. The crowd sternly told him to be quiet, but they cried out all the more, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. Mark 10. Well, I don't think it's 49. It's 10, 47, 48. Sorry, that's a misnomer there. Verse 47. When he heard it was Jesus the Nazarene, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, Son of David, Ben David, Yeshua Ben David, have mercy on me. Many were sternly telling him to be quiet, but he kept crying out all the more. Ben David, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus uh, never turned away from someone who called out to him as son of David. That's why so many of the Gospels include these passages. Not the first time. It's not, not just one event. There are multiple events where a son of David gets Jesus' attention. In fact, it should get our attention as well because you remember, it's the basic story of, of, of uh, uh, the birth of our Messiah when Herod the Great not so great. Feared the one who was born, the king of the Jews. You remember this? In Matthew 2, 2, he was afraid. And Jesus, you remember, was crucified as the king of the Jews. But he proclaimed that his kingdom, for the present time at least, was not of this world. According to the teaching of the apostles, the son of David concept is primarily applicable to Jesus' future function as king of the earth, as he reigns from his father David's throne in Jerusalem. That's why I am not a progressive dispensationalist. Because I believe that the son of David, the Davidic covenant, while Jesus is absolutely the son of David, he is not yet ruling on his father David's throne from Jerusalem. Right. It's, a very, it's a very simple distinction, but it's one that makes me non-progressive. <laughs> Call me a caveman, if you will. Right? The, the apostles. The apostles uh, spoke of this. When we think about uh, Peter, for example, and so because he, David, was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with oath, to sit to seat one of his descendants on his throne. He looked ahead and spoke. Perfect example, perfect opportunity for Peter to say, and this guy right now, because he knew that God had sworn with an oath to David to seat one of his descendants on the throne, he is now seated on the throne of David. Doesn't say it. But anyway, that's a little extra, thrown in for nothing, no extra charge. Um, but he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. That's Psalm 16. And of course, Paul. From the descendants of this man, David, according to promise. What promise? Davidic covenant promise. Well, Paul, why don't you spell that out for your audience? Because he's preaching in a synagogue and 
That's kind of ABC stuff. That's basic stuff, Davidic covenant. Well, Luke, why didn't you give us a parenthetical explanation regarding what promise he's talking about? And uh, maybe you could have given us a little parenthetical explanation as to the Davidic covenant. Imagine this. Luke didn't think it was necessary to expound and explain the Davidic covenant because when you're dealing with the limited amount of literary real estate that was represented by a first century scroll, you not scroll, by the way, that's the Marvel comics, uh, but a uh, scroll, uh, uh, you didn't waste space, you didn't waste ink and, and parchment and scroll on that which was already known. So from the descendants of this man, David, according to promise, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, the son of David concept. It's an important theological component within the presentations of both Peter and Paul when addressing, well, not a Gentile audience, because again, for a Gentile audience, Davidic covenant, Shmovenant, what are we talking about? Davidic, Shmovenant, you know, but for a Jewish audience, the assumption was literacy. Now, I know that I'm surrounded uh, by a whole mess of Gentiles here. In fact, fact, some of you, and I appreciate some of you speaking of Acts, some of you have uh, been working through my commentary on the book of Acts, uh, which is called Witnesses to the World. Uh, And uh, by the way, that wasn't the original title of that book. Original title of the book of Acts was Acts. Who let in all these Gentiles? (laughs) But the publisher didn't go for it. I don't know what I, I thought. A marketing genius, you know. Uh, but uh, but even though you may be ethnically Gentile, you shouldn't, um, uh, a, a, as a believer, as a follower of Messiah, whether you're a Jewish believer or a Gentile believer, you should have at least the basic knowledge that was available to uh, uh, faithful Jews in the first century, right? We know how to use our Dick Tracy watches, our smartphones. Uh, we have a queue of 200 films on Netflix uh, and Amazon Prime, and we know so many things, but we don't know Bible basics. That's why this conference is fantastic, and that is why it is so critical to have this stuff broadcast on the uh, on the web, on YouTube and Vimeo and all the other things, so that... Um, how will they believe? How will they know? Unless someone tells them. Well, I'm telling you. All right. Jesus himself. He dug the idea of being the son of David. He makes it very clear that uh, he was resurrected and that his resurrection, his exaltation, his identity is as the son of David, the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. I, Jesus, I've sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. We read this yesterday. It's an important verse, Revelation 22, 16. I am the root and descendant of David, the bright morning star. Yesterday we focused in on the star. Today we focus in on the descendant of David. He's not just giving you a genealogical pedigree. Dig me. I have uh, awesome genealogy. He's saying I'm the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. Very, very important. So when we look at 
Peter's use of Psalm 16, when we look at Paul's use of uh, the Davidic covenant, we look at Jesus. We must understand that the Davidic covenant contains a promise of an eternal throne. How do you fulfill? That's like an inscrutable promise. How do you have an eternal throne? Not just enduring, but eternal. And God showed David. This is why it's very, very important to understand that David understood what he was writing. He wrote what he meant. He meant what he wrote. And God showed David. Peter tells us. God showed David that the only way that you get both the enduring, uh, the eternal throne, whether the, the eternal throne, the unshakable kingdom, and the unending dynasty was to have an immortal descendant, one who would not see decay in Sheol, in the grave, right? One who would not decompose, one who would not be abandoned to the abode of the dead, one who would live forever, who would conquer death. That's the anointed one. That's our Messiah. That's our Mashiach, right? The Messiah, after resting in the grave, would somehow... And you've got to admit, though, from Hebrew Bible, it's a paradox. How could he abide in Hades, in the in Sheol, in the, in the grave, and still live forever? That's an inscrutable paradox that doesn't get answered until we see Jesus. But Jesus doesn't introduce the paradox. The paradox predates Jesus, in other words, with the Davidic covenant, right? To, to, to fulfill the Davidic covenant. How is the Davidic covenant to be fulfilled? The son of David would of necessity need to be resurrected. Well, my goodness, there's so much I can say to you on this, but we must move on. Uh, did anybody pay attention to when we stop? Right? 2.45? Okay, good. I've got 20 minutes. Let's go to Proverbs. Let's go to Proverbs. Now, you say, okay, Proverbs, Messianic prophecy in Proverbs? Yeah, I think one. I think one. That's Proverbs 34. And the question is, the name of God's Son. The author of this section of Proverbs is King Agar. Okay, one of my forebearers. No, it's Agur. Yeah, uh, but uh, and he asks four rhetorical questions in this verse, each of which possesses an identical answer. First, he asks, "Who has ascended into heaven or descended?" Second question. Who has gathered the wind in his fists? Third question. Who has wrapped the waters in a garment? Fourth question. Who has established all the ends of the earth? No human being was capable of performing such majestic feats of creative spectacle. So let's say that you're a student of the Hebrew, of, uh, you're a Hebrew student uh, of Proverbs living in the time of uh, Agor. And even to the least educated student of these Proverbs, say you're a C or a D student, the obvious answer to the four questions, who has done these four things? 
is God himself. The fifth question, what is his name? It's not a rhetorical question. It's equally obvious. What is God's name? It's not, it's not capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, right? I think 10% uh, uh, at least of our church's uh, biblical ignorance has to do with uh, particular conventions that are used within Bible translations, the refusal to at least substitute a name uh, for the tetragram. Just write out the consonants, Y-H-V-H. You don't want to use a euphemism like Jehovah or Adonai or something. But God has a name. What is his name? It's Jehovah. Y-H-V-H. The Tetragrammaton. That was revealed to Israel centuries prior to uh, Agur, to his readers. The answer to the fifth, or the sixth rather, and final question, unlike the previous five questions, is less readily apparent. What is his son's name? Surely you know, or some translations. What is his son's name, if you know? That's like a, hang That's a hanging Agatha Christie level mystery that hangs over Israel all the way... <laughs> From the time of the Proverbs, the writing of the Proverbs, all the way through to the time of, uh, of Yeshua's uh, entry onto the human stage, onto the stage of Second Temple, Israel. First Advent. No one, the time of the Proverbs, no one could know the name of God's Son. The name of Yeshua is only revealed in the New Testament. I think it's tremendously encouraging, at least for me, to note that nestled snugly within myriad nuggets of truth, of Proverbs designed to direct the reader toward godly wisdom, is one proverb, and you know, if you blink, you miss it, but one proverb that provides a tasty, prophetic glimpse into the greatest truth of all, God's Son. Now we move. Hmm. Actually, I do want to point this out to you. You know what? This is good. Um, Midrash. We talked about Midrash. Yesterday, maybe I, maybe I mentioned it, maybe nobody uh, uh, understood what I'm talking about. A midrash is uh, when all of a sudden you get oh, so itchy. So right about here, the center, oh, it's a, very uncomfortable. Uh, but no, it, it's, uh, it's, sermon, it's rabbinic sermonic material, right, which was collected. We have a great collection called the Midrash Rabbah. And in this, it's just one very, very cool quote. Rabbi Nathan said that God spoke to Israel, said... As I made Jacob firstborn, so also will I make Mashiach my firstborn. So recognition in Jewish rabbinic literature that the Messiah is indeed the Son of God. Just what we have teased right here in Proverbs. Of course, the New Testament treats the idea of who is the son uh, if you're and tells you his son, this uh, Luke 1, 
the Annunciation, which we've already read. And we move now to one of the great literal prophetic psalms in the collection. We're going we're gonna to end tonight with psalms, but we'll just whet our appetites right now with this particular psalm because this is what I would consider to be hot stuff. What are psalms? Psalms are a diverse assortment of Hebrew poetry composed for why? For the purpose of both public and private worship, right? It uh, embodies, embraces thematic variety. You go from praise to prayer to prophecy. And you have within the psalms uh, assorted uh, eschatological material. We have rehearsals of both the Abrahamic and Davidic covenants. You know, the great themes, it's like going, again, you read, you read uh, the, the Bible and uh, it's like going to a Star Wars film. You know, if you don't hear some of those great themes, if somebody doesn't uh, start playing, bah, bah, yeah, bah, da, bah, bah, right, then I want my money back. You know, I want to refund it for my ticket, right? And the same thing with the Bible. Once great messianic themes are introduced, for example, in Torah and in the early part of the writings, then you expect that they're going to play out throughout the rest of Scripture, in the Psalms and in the prophets. You have implicit and explicit expressions of fervent messianic expectation. On the surface, Psalms wouldn't be classified as one of the uh, eschatological volumes in the Hebrew Scriptures. Nonetheless, it's unquestionable that underlying the poetic nuance of the vast majority of the Psalms has revealed the composer's confident foundational hope in Israel's God and their ardent anticipation of Israel's glorious messianic future. Jesus himself indicated the Psalms' weighty quantity of messianic prophecies when he spoke to his disciples. We looked at this verse last uh, time uh, when we introduced the idea of why messianic prophecy is important, right? Luke 24, 44, all things written about me in where? Law of Moses, the prophets, and the, say it with me, Psalms must be fulfilled. All right. Um, yeah, I said say it with me, not like me. Psalms. Uh, that was actually A flat. Uh, but uh, in, <laughs> the New Testament makes over 200 quotations of or allusions to passages, titles, and ideas that are contained within the Psalms. And Psalm 2 is the first of several messianic psalms that are written by both king and prophet David. Why are the nations in an uproar? And the peoples devising a vain thing. The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his Mashiach, his anointed, saying, let us tear the fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. We open here with a description of an impudent, uh, conspiratorial, worldwide op opposition to both God and to His anointed. Let's see the response. He who sits in the heavens laughs. Ha ha, says God. The Lord scoffs, that's in the original Hebrew, uh, the Lord scoffs at them. And after he uh, laughs, after he scoffs, then he will speak to him, to them in his anger. And he will terrify them 
in his fury, saying, But as for me, and that really is a capital M, me, I have installed my melech, my king, upon Zion, my holy mountain. Now we move from a third-person narrative to a first-person voice. And I believe that this is the first-person voice, the prophetic voice of the Messiah. David speaking, writing, as if he is representing the voice of the Messiah. I will tell, surely, of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me. And I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. So what is the text saying? It's affirming that the Messiah is the Lord's Son and He's endowed with the very authority of God Almighty Himself. You are my Son today. I have begotten you. This authority not only extends over Israel, but over, look at this, all the nations. I will give the nations as your inheritance, the very ends of the earth. Praise Son of God always denotes the unique qualities and relationship between God and Israel. In some instances, it's God and Israel, like Hosea 11. Uh, God and the Davidic kings of Israel within the context of the Davidic covenant. But here we have this phrase denoting the relationship between God and the prophesied ultimate son of David, the Messiah. So the psalm's description and the imagery in the psalm, they really, they put us in a corner as readers. It forces us into making a crucial interpretive choice. Historically, neither David nor his royal descendants ever possessed the worldwide authority attributed to the psalm's king. Right? This uh, leaves the limitations of a local uh, uh, royal ruler far behind, right? And so unless you attribute, on the one hand, you have to attribute to David a vast perpetration of hyperbole, and that's a choice that some make, you have to undoubtedly conclude that the scope of what David is describing here extends far beyond the immediate prospects of any contemporary Old Testament Israelite king and moves us, places us, plops us into the far reaches of an eschatological future. I'll show you what I mean. Now, therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the sun, actual, actual, uh, language is neshach uh, bar, kiss the sun. And that was a way of doing homage. I don't mind when an interpreter, a trans, <laughs> is it Freudian slip? When a translator, who always is an interpreter, by the way, of the text, I don't mind when they take the literal text, kiss the sun, and try to make that because... Because you know what? Because people are so weird today. Um, if you say, kiss the sun. That's why, you know, when's the last time you heard somebody, when's the last time one of you out here preached something that shows up in Paul like three times? Greet one another with a holy kiss. You know, 
go ahead. Let's see how many lawsuits and threatened uh, actions, you know, you have against, uh, against the people in your church. Right? But you can't say, kiss the sun today because somebody will misinterpret it. So you, you, you bring the cookies, not to the lowest shelf, you put the cookies on the floor. Right? <laughs> And say, do homage, okay, worship, do homage, the sun. There are actually some, some translations that, uh, that uh, uh, obscure it. But um, uh, whether it's kiss or do homage to the sun, the shach bar, you get the idea. Do homage to the sun, kiss the sun. How come? Because he's lonely? No. That he may not become angry. So you better do homage. Appropriate homage to this sovereign lest he become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all those who take refuge in him. So we go back to the third person with a warning. We Remember, we were in the first person for a little while, Messiah's voice. And now we go to the third person with a warning of the unqualified severity of the Son of God's judgment and wrath. It's an extraordinary thing. Do homage to the Son, or he'll be angry. And like the Hulk, you wouldn't like him when he's angry. Right? It's a warning. It's a really, Watch out for that judgment and wrath to be directed to all those who do not do proper, appropriate homage, kiss, to worship the Lord by showing reverence to his Son. Right? You worship God by doing reverence to His Son. Mankind's rapport, our relationship with the Lord, is determined through our stance regarding God's Son, the Messianic King. And how blessed are those who take refuge in Him. Well, is this... Uh, Oh, yeah, I do, yeah. So we're going to pick up the New Testament use of Psalm 2. Thank you. We'll pick up the New Testament use of Psalm 2 this evening, okay? So if you don't mind being left hanging for a few hours, um, we will continue. How about some questions? Uh, here's a, this is a good mic right here. Oh, those are even better, yeah. Okay, good. Questions? There's one on the back, I see. I got it. I got him. For those of you who want to do your exercises, work off the lunch. This is a compound question. Um, in light of what we've been talking about. A compound question? Yes, hey, sir. Do you want me to give you a compound answer? Okay, I give you, yes, okay go yes, ahead. Absolutely. You're supposed um, to say objection. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the... The first issue that I would like to know, first off, thank you for clarifying that you're a normative dispensationalist. Yeah, I am. Yeah. All right. Nor normative. I don't know that my wife would agree with the first part, <laughs> but the second part, yes, absolutely. Right. Yes. Um, my question concerns picture exegesis because yes. as we're looking at how uh, studying about the expectation of the Messiah, especially during the silent years, yes, there's a tendency where a lot of people are – taking the hermeneutics of that time and trying to apply it to the New Testament in such a way where I think they go too far, and there's also all these cults that are going forth. This is the second question. How Wait, was there a question in the first part? Yes. Oh. How, 
how can you avoid the danger of pressure exegesis whenever dealing with the continuity uh, and the distinctiveness within the Old Testament and New Testament? And okay. The, and the hold, second question. Hold, hold that right, right there. Okay. Now, you know what pressure exegesis is. Right. And I, no, I know what pressure, but you know what? Not everybody out there and certainly not everybody streaming knows what pressure. So before we address that, what do you mean by pressure exegesis? Basically studying how they're doing hermeneutics during the intertestamental times. Yes. And uh, coming up with these almost novel Kabbalistic at certain extremes uh, forms of interpretation, interpretive principles, hermeneutics. Well, right, right. So, so in other words, what we talked about yesterday in lecture one, which uh, we looked at, at our hermeneutic, um, and we talked about my approach, our approach, is going to be rhetorical, grammatical, historical, in other words, common sense, right? Well, the rabbis start with our normative hermeneutic, and they use that as just a foundation for a tremendous level of unleashed creativity, right? Um, this was, uh, creative exegesis was almost like a, uh, a sport to uh, the rabbis. You know, listen, the, the, the goyim are running around with balls and running, and I'll race you from this end to that end, and who's going to be first, and whatever. Uh, but the rabbis, the Jewish guys, are sitting hunched over the text, you know, and saying, well, I'll raise you that word, and I'll match that word with this. And who needs Sudoku when you have rabbinic exegesis? So you're saying, watch out for that. I agree with you, yes? Okay, so you're compound. Yeah. The, the second question is this. There's... A, a perpetuation of black Hebrew Israelite cults, the Paleo Hebrew fallacies, uh, sacred namers, all over the internet, growing in groups and stuff like that. Yeah. So, how can we engage those type of people in such a way that we we help them understand the the Jewish Messiah uh, within a, a, the dispensational biblical framework? Okay. First of all, first of all. Um, you, you, you don't fight counterfeit by studying counterfeit and learning. Right? I mean, if you're going to we'll work as a teller in a bank, you don't study all the different various permutations of what a $100 bill could look like. You study like you know it, like the back of your hand, like the front of your hand. You study the genuine article. Right? And that's what we're doing here this, this week. We are studying the genuine. We are, we are doing standard chromatical, historical, rhetorical exegesis of the text. Now, every now and then, it is a very helpful and interesting exercise to look over here and say, well, okay, here's the passage as I've interpreted it, as I'm seeing the uh, exegesis, and now let me look at how the, how the rabbis looked at it. What's the traditional Jewish interpretation? Of course, you always get multiple Jewish, right? Two Jews, three opinions, right? But nonetheless, it's very interesting no matter what... Uh, what uh, techniques they're using, creative or otherwise, um, it's interesting to see what they see and why they see it, et cetera, et cetera. So um, we don't have to worry about, I don't think anybody in this room has to worry about doing rabbinic exegesis. Now, as far as, you know, these, uh, uh, these uh, uh, kakamemi, uh, which is a uh, Yiddish word meaning kakamemi. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> But uh, uh, these, these, you know, black Israel, I mean, you know, you see them in the corner in New York, you know, whatever. It's a little entertaining if you're not, not too nervous. Uh, but uh, uh, I wouldn't worry. I mean, truth is truth. 
Truth is truth. We have sacred name. We have one name. We have all, I mean, and then believe, look, you have in the church, you have a lot of crazy stuff. You have a lot of, let's say, eccentricities. In the messianic world, we have eccentricities to the exponential, okay? Everything that you think you're dealing with, messianic world, we're dealing with a ton more, okay? And I didn't know when I first got into messianic ministry, when I graduated from seminary, I had no idea that I was going to be spending at least one-third of my time unraveling and untying all the mess and the, what we call mishigas that, uh, that uh, Goyim uh, have made uh, who think, oh, look, I, I know if you Jewish things. Uh, all of a sudden, I'm a black Israelite. And uh, all of a sudden, uh, uh, there's one name of God, and his name is uh, Yashu, Yahashua, Yoshua, whatever. So, I don't even remember the question. <laughs> all right, somebody give me a non-compound question, Steve, please. Steve, <laughs> given the compound nature of that question yeah. and the compound answer, yeah. Uh, we're out of time. Oh, okay. Good. So we will see folks at 3.10. All right. Thank you. <laughs>